with all the busyness of church life and activity and all of the, the plans we make and the, the, the programs that we do, all of that busyness sometimes can, can cloud our thinking and can, can take away from the, the clarity of, of purpose and the real reason that we gather on Sunday mornings. And, and sometimes it's important for us to, to stop what we're doing and take a step back and to really focus again on, on why we're here, really focus again on the, the heart of the message, the, the heart of what means us gathering here this morning, who we are as this gathered people, these people called by God. Today, I, I, I want us to, to really think about that in terms of the, the shadow that hangs over the world, the, the, the deep and dark shadow that hangs over human existence. I think there's a, there's a really deep problem that, that cuts into the life of every single one of us. It cuts into the life of every single human, and it, it works against the, the full, beautiful, meaningful life that God created us for. And I think everyone on the planet understands that. Everyone can sense that something here is not right. There is something deeply wrong with what's happening in the world. I think, I think we sense that. I mean, I, I, I mentioned this morning to a couple people, even yesterday in the grocery store, I was checking out at Meyer and, and just a quick conversation with the cashier and just a, a few questions, uh, you know, showing some interest in, in her and who she was. And, and she got into a, a pretty deep struggle of, of their life. She, she um, is engaged to this man who has three sons and the son's mother is just totally absent from their life. They, they've never, those boys have never experienced the love of a mother, and she was kind of relating that the struggle of that to me, to you know, basically a complete stranger pouring out this deep struggle of her life. And to me, this is just more evidence that we know this. We all know that things are not how they're supposed to be. We all know that there are big struggles of life that we deal with. And I think because we all know that, there's all sorts of solutions that are proposed to these problems. So how are we going to fix this? So for some there is great hope in education. We think, well, if we can manage to provide a good education to everyone in the world, then they won't turn to violence and greed. They won't keep perpetuating systems of injustice. If we can just educate enough people, all the problems of the world will slowly be alleviated. Education is the solution. Or for others, the great hope is in establishing the right governmental structures. So we say, well, if we can oust the, the cruel dictators, get the wrong people out of power, and if we can establish good democratic systems, then eventually that is going to remove the problems of oppression and inequality. Those, those will be solved. If we can get the right structures in place, then there won't be this uh, perpetual injustice, that the this pain and suffering of the world will go away if we can just get the right structures in place. Or for others, it's a, it's a great hope in, in setting a shared level of morality together. So if we can sort of promote the right laws and pass enough of those, then people will have to live by that moral code, and, and then the family won't keep eroding, and, and these cultural trends toward the, the devaluation of human life, those things will be, will be stopped. So if we can just pass the right laws, then, then this will fix things. But the problem is far deeper than any of these solutions can handle. I mean, put in graphic terms, the, the earth has a, a gaping chest wound. And these solutions that we're putting on them are, are little band-aids. And they, they are at best a, a token effort to change things. But, but that doesn't stop this, 
destruction of life that's coming from this wound. This is obliterating hope by the minute. These efforts are, are futile at bringing lasting, deep, true healing to that kind of pain. So what I want us to see this morning is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only viable solution to the dark shadow that hovers over human existence. Now, if you're not quite clear on what gospel means, we'll get there. We'll talk about what gospel is specifically. But first, we need to see the need for the gospel. Why do we really need the gospel? We need the gospel because sin is a very real, very destructive problem. This morning we're going to get a sense of the destructive power of sin, even in relation to good things. We're going to see the power of sin in relation to the Old Testament law, and we're going to see the power of sin in relation to our own hearts. So we're in Romans chapter 7 this morning, verses 7 through 25. If you uh, would turn there in your pew Bibles, it's found on page 1117. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. We're continuing our study in the book of Romans and learning what it really means to be a church that is driven by the gospel. So first we're going to see the problem of sin in relation to the Old Testament law. If we're going to understand this, we've got to understand with what we talk about when we say the word law, what, what Old Testament law really means in the context of Romans 7. Uh, law here is... The Torah, the first five books of the uh, Bible, you know, they are God's instructions for life given through his servant Moses to teach his people Israel how to live. So these are instructions for life. They're commandments there. You are to live this way because of who God is. I want to share a bit of Psalm 19 with you because this gets gets us a sense of how good the Old Testament law is. This is Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. And this is how God's word talks about God's law. It is a good thing. It's a thing that, that brings life. It brings satisfaction. It teaches us how we are to live. It is more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. The law is a good thing. And so Paul wants to head off wrong thinking as he starts talking about the law here. So Romans 7, the first verse, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. The way Paul has been talking about the reign of sin and death and the way he has lumped the law together with that old way before might have given people the wrong impression. They might have thought that the law was the problem, or at least the law was part of the problem. Paul is saying very clearly here that the law is not the enemy. On the contrary, the law is what teaches us what sin really is. It teaches us how bad and how destructive sin is. The law is a good thing. And yet this does not mean that all is well. Look at the continuation of that verse in the next several. 
for I would not known, have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So the law is good. We've seen that from Psalm 19, and Paul is affirming that here in Romans 7. The law is good. The law directs us to God's good purposes, and yet sin has other plans. Sin is going to use the commandments of God as a a bridgehead or a base of operations for its purposes. The language here is a military word. Sin is on the attack. It's going to use whatever resources it can find, even God's good revelation, even the good resources that he has given to lead us to life. Sin is going to try to skew those and use those to deceive us and work about its purposes of death. And the result is the great reversal that he talks about here in verse 10. The law was given for life, and yet sin has twisted it and is using it for death. Sin does this by giving us desires that are contrary to God's clear plan. So God says, do not covet. I am enough for you. I have provided enough. You don't need to covet what someone else desires or what someone else owns. And then sin comes along and says, You know, you really need that thing. God didn't give you that yet. You need that thing. There's something that you don't have, and that's pretty important for happiness for you. Sin deceives us. It's the same story that began back in the Garden of Eden. God tells Adam and Eve, I am enough for you. I have given you everything you need. You don't eat from that tree because that will not bring you happiness. That will draw you far away from me. And then Satan tells Adam and Eve that, It's such a pity that they can't have that nice fruit. It looks pretty good. And in fact, it will bring a a change about them. They will become like God. If God doesn't want them to eat from that, he must not really want them to be happy. God knows that happiness is only found in complete reliance upon him, in total obedience to him. And so he gives the right command, do not eat from that. And then sin skews that. Satan deceives humans into thinking that happiness is found in questioning that, in questioning God's goodness and questioning his love. And it's found in instead obeying our own desires, becoming, in effect, our own little gods, disobeying God and going with our own plan. And so we see that the law itself isn't the problem. The command isn't the problem. Sin is the problem. So from this perspective, if the law is on trial, it's exonerated. It has been declared innocent, righteous. So verse 12, Paul says, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So Paul can wholeheartedly agree with Psalm 19 that we just heard. Yes, the law is good. It is giving life and understanding. It teaches us what it means to have a full and meaningful life in obedience to God. The law is more precious than gold. It's sweeter than honey. Paul can affirm that. One last defense for now. Verse 13. 
Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. So Paul saying the law is good. The law is God's good revelation. The law itself did not become death. Don't get the wrong idea. Sin is not the culprit. Excuse me. The law is not the culprit. Sin is the culprit. Sin produces death through a twisting of what is good and righteous and holy. What this shows us is how bad sin really is. Sin is such a force that it can even use a good God-given tool, a good God-given thing, the revelation of God in the Old Testament. It can use that for its evil purposes. So sin's twisting of God's law, we see here, shows how bad it really is. It shows how sinful sin is. Sin is, in the words of verse 13, shown to be utterly sinful. So Paul's teaching here that Yes, the law of God is good. His instructions are good. And yet sin is so powerful that it twists that and it uses it to bring death. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with sin. And we can think of it in terms of of tools that we use. I think even a good, useful tool can be used for destructive purposes. So I think about a kitchen knife. I think... You can't really have a fully functioning kitchen. You can't do the whole range of food preparation things that you need to do if you don't have a kitchen knife, right? I mean, all of us have knives in our kitchen. These are good tools. We chop vegetables with them. We do all this this whole range of food preparation with a a knife. It's a good tool. It's a useful tool. And yet, someone with evil intent can take that good instrument and use it to harm someone else. They can use that good instrument... To destroy life. The problem isn't with the tool itself. The problem is with the misuse of it. The misuse of something good by evil for evil purposes. The law is not the problem. The law itself is good. These are God's instructions for life. And yet sin uses that and brings death. And so what we learn from this is that sin really is tricky. Sin is going to use whatever it can get its hands on to try to destroy our lives. This is why we see this this cloud over our existence. This is that dark shadow. Sin is using even good to try to produce more death and more destruction. So we start to get a picture of how bad sin is in relation to the Old Testament law. But where this really starts to hit home for us is when we see the power of sin in relation to our own heart. This is where we come to the fun part. Look at verses 14 and 15. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for I want to for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. I think most of us can relate to this, right? I mean, we want to be these good, friendly, helpful, hardworking people, and yet so often we find that we are instead snarky, standoffish, lazy, unhelpful people. More often than we realize, we are exactly the kind of person that we complain most bitterly about. 
And if we really examine our hearts and our lives, we probably complain so bitterly about that other kind of person because we recognize that that is within us. I am that person, and I don't like seeing it in someone else, but I can complain about it when I see it in them. But for me, it's the struggle of my heart. I mean, if you're not, if you haven't sort of realized that yet and you're on Facebook, look at some of the Facebook rants that you see. These people are, are ranting against the very thing that they're doing so often. Saying, well, that person can't see from anyone else's perspective. They're so bullheaded and black and white, and they, they're just stuck in their little system. And you're saying, well, I guess you're kind of doing the same thing. And then you're, you're condemning them for being a judgmental person, and you're kind of elevating yourself in your mind, but then you have to stop and realize that you're perpetuating the cycle because you, too, are contributing to that judgmental spirit. I'm better than you. In any case, this is more serious than that because Paul is talking about understanding that God's law is good, understanding that what God's law teaches us is good, and then affirming that it is indeed good, and then doing the very opposite of what it says. That is a problem. So what does this mean? Look at verses 16 through 20. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So the problem we saw with sin in relation to the Old Testament law is that sin twists the good law to produce death. But the problem here is that sin gets right inside of us. It's not that sin is kind of externally trying to produce something evil out of something good, but it's in our very hearts. It lives in us. It makes us its slaves. Sin doesn't just work with God's good revelation, the law. Sin works within God's good creation, you and I, humans. Sin is making us do things that we know are wrong, things that we don't approve of. We we want to approve of what God says. We, We want to do what is right, and yet we don't have power to do it in ourselves. We find ourselves making the wrong choice in our actions and in our attitudes all the time, consistently. Verses 21 to 23. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. This is laying out the problem of sin so clearly for us. We want to do good, or at least we want to want to do good, but when we set out to actually do it, we find that right there in front of us is evil. Evil is right at hand. It's much more convenient than doing good. Sin puts it right within my arm's reach. Inside, we know that God's plan is best. We know that God's law is good. We want to sing with the psalmist about how precious God's Word is. We want to sing about how great His commandments are, how they're more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. We want to be doing that. But the sweetness of God's law is made bitter because 
It's sin is waging a war in our hearts. So the military language emerges again. Before, sin was using the commandments of the law as a base of operations where it could twist the, the good commandment and produce death out of it. And now we see that sin is waging a war inside of us. This is what we find, isn't it? I mean, today, I'm going to go good. I'm going to do good. And so we set out to do good. And then as you're minding your own business, going through the checkout counter, there just happens to be a magazine cover right there with a racy picture of a woman on the cover. And you think, well, maybe just a little glance. It's right there in front of me. You know, what can I do? I can't, I can't fight this. And just like that, you are casting your vote for a world in which humans, particularly women, are viewed as objects of desire to be in some way giving me pleasure rather than the people that God has made in his own image and whom he has sent his son to redeem. Or you set out and you say, I'm going to be good today. I'm going to follow God's will today. I'm going to do what he wants me to do. And then you just happen to hear a tantalizing piece of information. You overhear it about someone you know, and then you just happen to run across another person that knows that person too. And, and the conversation kind of comes to a lull, and you think, well, you know, what am I going to do? What, how can I not share this information? It's really interesting. That's not so bad. And just like that, you are damaging another one of God's creatures, someone he loves, someone made in his image, someone for whom his son died. You're damaging them for no apparent reason. We find that sin is waging a war within us. It's like those cartoons with the angel on one shoulder and the, the demon on the other shoulder. And we know that what the angel is saying is true, and yet we're going to side with the demon every time. Our intentions are good, and yet sin is warring within us to make us make the wrong choice time and time again. And so you and I are left in a pitiable position. A war is being waged within our very hearts. We are being torn in two. And so it's no wonder in verse 24 that Paul cries out, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Yes, this is what we want to know. Who is going to save us from this war within our own hearts? Who is going to stop us from being torn in two when we have this good desire and we find evil living within us? We find ourselves struggling and struggling every day against sin and sin wins more often than not. And we think, how are we ever going to get out of this? Who will save us? We are crying out for rescue. We don't know what to do. We don't have the resources within ourselves. And so we say, who will save us from this? Verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the good news. There is a deliverer. God sent his own son and he has come to rescue you and me. See, Paul has just shown us why we need the gospel. Sin is a deep, destructive power. It's a force that will use anything it can get its hands on to work its power for more death and more destruction. It wants that shadow to continue hanging over human existence. It will try to use God's own law. It will try to use your own mind, your own heart. It's warring against even God's creation to bring more death. And that is exactly why God sent his son into the world. 
He sent His Son to rescue us. God knows the power of sin. God gave us the law to show us how bad sin really is, to show sin for its, its utterly sinful nature, show sin for what it really is. And He uses our experience of the struggle with sin, the, the war within us, to show us that we need Him. We can't do this on our own. We don't have the strength and the resources within ourselves to be able to cast off the power of sin. It has made us its slave. Jesus died on the cross to break that power over us. The cross is God's answer to sin's deceptive, destructive power. That's what I meant when I said the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only viable solution to the dark shadow that clouds and hangs over human existence. This is the gospel message here. If you're not clear on what the gospel is, here it is in short form. The gospel is simply the good news about Jesus. That message starts with the dark shadow. It starts with the realization that even though you were created good, you turned away from God and you have become sin's slave. You are now in this struggle where actually more often than not, we don't even want to do good. We want to serve ourselves. We want to do evil. That cloud has gripped us. We have become sin's slave. Sin has us in its grip. But that darkness then gives way to light because Jesus came to change all of that for you. Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth and lived a perfectly obedient life to God the Father. And Jesus died on a cross to take away the guilt of your sin and to forgive you for your rebellion against God. And Jesus rose from the dead in defeat of the power of death and sin. And Jesus now reigns at the right hand of God the Father where He will come back to the world to fully and finally establish His kingdom. That is the gospel in summary form. If you put your whole trust in Jesus, you belong to Him. You no longer belong to sin. What that means in relation to the struggle of Romans 7 is that whole struggle is already decided. That war that sin wages against God in your mind and in your heart, the outcome is already assured there. The outcome's not in question. The war has been won. Victory has been accomplished on the cross. Sin has lost the war, and yet our experience of it shows that sin is trying to take us down with it. The war is decided, but Satan is going to work for as many casualties as he can. He's going to try to work the deceptive power of sin so that you think that there is no rescue here. You think there's no deliverance here because he wants to bring you down with him. And so we wait as a church for Jesus' victory to cover the whole realm of creation. We wait for the full realization of God's kingdom as Jesus promised to return and establish that in full form. But we must not forget what Paul has said already in Romans 6. And we must not forget what he's about to say in Romans 8. The reality is that in Christ you are free from the power of sin. You have been redeemed. You are not sin's slave anymore. You now belong to Jesus. In Christ you are free from the power of sin. God has redeemed you from slavery, has removed you from the realm of death. 
The victory has been won decisively in Jesus, and you now belong to God. So do not forget that. Do not forget the realities of the gospel that Paul has already proclaimed. It's that reality of the gospel that gives us needed perspective as we go through the course of our lives. We know that in connection to Christ, we are healed. In connection to Christ, there's no question of this war of, of sin and against God's righteousness. No, in Christ, we are righteous. We are His people. God's kingdom is secure. And we, as a living people, are living in light of the future reality now. The future is breaking into the present among us now. But the concluding words here should not be ignored. Look at how Paul ends this statement, verse 25. So then I I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. The reality that you and I live in every day continues to be one of great struggle. Our experience, as it lines up with Paul's struggle at the end of chapter 7 here, cautions us against an overly triumphalistic tone when we hear the words of the gospel. Yes, it is true that we are redeemed from slavery to sin. Yes, it is true that we belong to Jesus. Yes, the victory over sin and death has been accomplished on the cross. Those are the objective realities in which we live. And yet we still wait with creation for the full healing of the world. The cry of the church since its very beginning has been, Come, Lord Jesus, because we realize that until Jesus comes again, we will continue to experience the struggle against sin's power. Sin continues to deceive us. Sin continues to try to deceive even those who belong to Jesus. So on the one hand, I want you to not despair when you continue to struggle with sin. That is a reality of of our human life still until Jesus returns again. Yes, we will struggle with sin. And yet, in not despairing, we must not grow comfortable with sin. Sin is the enemy. Sin always is the enemy until Jesus returns and we experience the life of new, redeemed creation in its full form. Sin will try to track you. But the reality is that it has lost its power over you in Jesus Christ. And so our task is to cling to Christ because in Him is where there is power. In Him is how we are not under sin's power any longer. We've already seen that our resources are not enough to fight sin. If we were left on our own to continue this battle, it would be hopeless. We'd be left with what Paul is saying, what a wretched man I am. Sin twists and deceives even what is good to bring about death. We are not strong in ourselves to fight that. But we realize that we have a rescuer. God has sent His Son to deliver us. Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, has fought for us, and we now live in Him. You and I and our whole world need a Savior desperately. As many solutions as we present, as many solutions as we test and try and and push for, nothing is going to change the world until the power of sin is dealt with in the human heart. 
Thanks be to God that the church, the gathered community who have been called out in Jesus Christ is a reflection that God is beginning even now to do that. As imperfect as we are, as conflicted as we remain, we are, as Christians, walking evidence together on earth that God is making all things new. We are those who have heard the outcome, and we live in light of that outcome, pointing to it every day in every moment of our existence so that the world that so desperately needs healing can see where healing comes from. That is our task as a church. We are God's redeemed people. We know that he is making creation new. That is where we live our lives, today, tomorrow, and always. Please pray with me. God, we are so thankful for your grace and love. We were so caught up in this struggle with sin. We continue to be so caught up in this struggle with sin. And yet you have spoken a more decisive word than that. You have said, you are mine. And that means that in Jesus Christ, we are yours. This struggle is not ultimate for us anymore. We don't despair because we know that there is a Redeemer. There is a Rescuer. You have sent Your Son and You have changed all of that. Father, empower us to live out lives as Your people proclaiming Your good healing to a world that so desperately needs to be healed. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.